Amen. Well, guess what? We are in a series on, who knows? Money. Money. That's right. And we're going to be talking about money today. Actually, that's not exactly true. We're not only going to be talking about money. We're going to be talking about blessings, blessing, and motivation. That's up there, right? I'll do the show. Yes. Okay, good, good, good. We're working great so far. As I was putting this message together, I had a bunch of thoughts, and I wanted to say all these things, and I'm thinking, how do I put a framework together for this? And then I went on vacation to Tennessee. I shot my first year this week, my first one. Yes. It was a miracle. I've been trying to shoot a deer for 21 years. And if you want to hear the long, sad story, I mean, it's almost unbelievable. It is truly almost unbelievable. But I got one. And uh, <laughs> that totally just sidetracked me right there. I was talking to my family, and they know the word and stuff. And they told me about this story. They reminded me of this story in the New Testament. And it clicked, and I said, that's what I'm going to base my sermon on. That, that comprises all of the things I want to say. So we're not going to talk about just money today. I want to talk about, through this story and Acts that we're going to look at, a biblical view of wealth in general, not just money, but all of the blessings that God blesses us with. Does that make sense? How does God see it? How should we view it? We're going to read our story first. This is Acts 4, 32 to 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's a lot in this story that I want to talk about. And, you know, some of it, you know, it was hard with the election we just had not actually to, like, wander into super politically charged language. And I might actually get into some of that. So if you don't like it, forgive me. Talk to me later. But the first thing I want you to notice in reading this story is that there are wealthy people in the church. There are wealthy people in the church. That's not going up there. Be you behave, computer. There we go. Who's selling the land? Who's selling the houses, plural? Wealthy people, right? So inside this congregation, we've got people that have means. And we know that Jesus said, yes, it's difficult for wealthy people, for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the David Guzik, the commentator I love so much on the Blue Letter Bible app, says it like this. He says, we tend to make one of two mistakes with this, this rich guy. The first mistake is we say, that applies to everybody. Everybody's got to sell all their possessions and give it to the poor. That's totally not the case. The whole Bible doesn't support that. This is an anomaly. If you read the story, Jesus smells a rat almost immediately with this guy. I mean, he's, he's instantly like trying to angle this dude. Like, check it out in Matthew. But the second mistake we make is thinking, well, this isn't really for anybody. That was only for this guy. Well, maybe not so. There might be some people that are so entangled in consumerism that are so owned by their possessions that they do need to make a crisp break. Who can say? But that's not my point. None of that is my point. 
My point is, in all three Gospels where this is recorded, right after Jesus says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven, guess what he says? But with God, it's possible. In all three stories, I don't hear that preached on very much. And so here we have wealthy people in the church by the grace of God. And we need to notice something else. God has always intended his people to be blessed. Now, forgive me if this sounds prosperity gospel-ish, but there's a reason the prosperity gospel gained a footing. It's in here. Sorry. I mean, we'll, we'll try to have a well-rounded picture, but allow me to go into it, if I may. Let's talk about God's intention for his people. He makes people. Boom. You got Adam and Eve. And then he says to them, God blessed them. Blessed them. And that Hebrew word, after he decides he wants to make another people out of Abraham, he goes down to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2 to 3, uses the same word and says, I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12, 2 to 3. God makes the first two people, blesses them. God has a chosen people, tells the patriarch, guess what? My intention is to bless you and to bless everybody through you. So what does this word mean? Is this just, go get them, tiger? Is that what bless means? Is bless kind of like a pat on the back? It's actually not. According to the Jesenius lexicon, that's what I said. It's on the Blue Letter Bible app. You can check it out. <laughs> Very often, this word is used of the result of the divine favor, and it means to cause to prosper. God is saying, I want you to prosper, and we see that in Genesis, don't we? He's like, look at all this food. You got a cool job. You're going to run the whole world, all right? You're going to represent me on earth. I want you to go and be successful, prosper, and while you're at it, make babies. Have fun, guys. Go get them, right? This is what he's saying. Here's another entry. This is from the Mounts' Expository. Excuse me. Yeah, here we go. I was on the wrong page. When God blesses, it is not an impotent wish, but the empowering and transforming word that accomplishes its purpose. It has a sense of inevitability. At the heart of God's blessing is God's presence with the holy God. That's key, by the way. At the heart of God's blessing is God's presence. This is really huge. This next part is going to frame the whole rest of our sermon. With a holy God in their midst, God's people are either blessed as a result of obedience or cursed as a result of disobedience. Somebody once told me the closer you are to God, the more serious everything becomes. And we see this with Moses, right? God messes up one time, can't go to the promised land. Wow, how harsh is that? This guy was talking to God face to face every day. The stakes get higher. As you get closer to God, not a you know, very popular topic to talk about. He is a loving father, but this is true too. We need to take this seriously. If part of being blessed is having a holy God in our midst, we need to be very wary of our motivations. Okay? We'll talk about that more later. But just in case we don't think God blessing people means I want you to be wealthy, I want you to be abundant, I want you to be blessed, prosperous, you can read Deuteronomy 28, which I won't read all of right now, but... God tells Moses to tell the people, 
tell them what it will look like to be blessed by me. He says, guess what? You're going to have tons of livestock. You're going to have tons of produce. You're going to have tons of kids. You're going to have tons of money. You're going to lend to nations, and you're not going to have to get loans from them. You're going to be the head and not the tail. You're going to be blessed when you go out, blessed when you come in. Everywhere you go, you're going to be tripping on my favor. Later on in the chapter, he talks us about the curses for disobedience. But the blessings are there. You guys tracking with me? So we shouldn't be surprised that there are rich people in the church because here is the real shocker. God loves rich people. (laughs) Expect blessed people in the church. God likes rich people. And all of us today, if we're Christians and we believe in Jesus... There are some passages in Romans you can look at. Romans 11, you can look at Galatians. We have literally been grafted into Israel. Paul talks about as if an olive tree had a branch broken off, and you take a a limb from another tree and graft it into the tree, and it starts growing on the tree. And he goes so far as to say that the root that's supporting us of this tree that we're now put in, it's, it's actually the patriarchs. John Stott, actually, in his commentary, says that the root that supports us is referring to the patriarchs of Israel. These are the guys that got the crazy blessings. Look, it's not an illogical leap to say we get in on all the promises, we get in on the blessings. God's intention is now to bless us as the church because we're grafted into Israel. This makes sense. This isn't wrong. You know, and if you hear pastors preaching this, they're not going wonky. They're not out at the left field. They're accurately interpreting the Bible so far. Okay, everyone who is in Christ now counts as Abraham's seed and the Israel of God. I said all that to say that God loves rich people. It seems to be fashionable more and more in our world to think of the rich as villains. Just because they have money, like the 1%. I mean, it's like you can't say that without spitting, right? You know? (laughs) Abraham was the 1%. Job was the greatest of the men of the East. He was the 0.1%. God loves rich people. God doesn't not want to bless people. Everybody get that. So we need to understand that as part of our biblical understanding of money and possessions. God is not against money and possessions. He's not against blessing. He loves rich people, and he loves to bless people, and that includes money. Point two, this has to entail something. If we're going to have a godly view of money and possessions, see, I hate this slide. I was going to say radical generosity, but you know, that's just wrong. It's wrong because it's not that radical. It's just godly generosity. There's really nothing that radical about it. If you have God's character and God's heart and you have provision, you have blessing, you have an abundance, some things are going to come very natural to you. It might look very strange to other rich people that don't have God's heart. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right, we're about to read some stuff. I'm going to read it on my phone. God intends the blessed to be a blessing. If we lose this, we lose God's heart. It's all through the Bible. I actually wrote a paper on it. Here's one example. This is from Leviticus, very popular book. Who loves Leviticus? Just me and Justin. High five. I knew it. If I would have said Deuteronomy or Numbers or Isaiah, any of those weird books, it'd be just me and you, probably. That's all right. Listen to this, okay? (laughs) This This is God's plan for the poor in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. 
Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do you realize what he's saying? He's like, you have this giant field full of produce and you have a team of people that can harvest it for you. This is what we're going to do. Just skim the corners, all right? Just leave some on the edges. And it, it actually says if you drop something, just don't pick it up. You've got a whole field, man. Because there's people in this town that don't have a field. And give them the dignity of doing some work and going and harvesting some stuff for themselves. It's generosity worked into the system. This shows the heart of God. Generosity. And he says, do it because I'm the Lord and you're supposed to look like me. Deuteronomy 15. This is a, a really cool chapter. In Deuteronomy 15, 4, God is, is speaking about his heart for the people. And he says, <clears throat> excuse me. He says, there will be no poor in Israel. Deuteronomy 15, 4. If you're reading ahead on the slide, you'll see that Deuteronomy 15, 11 says, there will always be poor people among you. <laughs> So you think, how is this possible? How can you say, you know, six verses before, there's not going to be any poor people, and then verse 11, there's always going to be poor people. Well, the answer is actually in verse 10. God says this, give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Somebody say motive. motive. Do it without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There are going to be people that are the have-nots. But they're not going to be that hard up because God's wealth redistribution plan is the rich. The wealthy people in Israel that have God's heart will naturally give. It says, open your hand wide in another place to your neighbor. You know, it says if they need money, need money, spot them alone and don't charge them interest. And after seven years, if they haven't paid you back, forget about it. This is God's plan. The radically blessed should by nature be radically generous. That's God's heart. So as we receive freely from a God who desires to bless us more than anything, we should model that toward other people. This is very key to understanding how God views wealth and possessions. Expect to be blessed. God likes to bless people. What's the natural response? Being a blessing. I have to say this because I was talking to my uncle Sam. About 13 years ago, I just happened to be bald. Happened to be bald when I was going through this phase. Had nothing to do with the fact that I was also really reading Marx a lot and the Communist Manifesto. And none of you know my Uncle Sam. And so if you did, this would be a lot funnier. But it is shocking to me that he didn't just strangle me. It's amazing. It is absolutely astounding. I'm on vacation. At 10, I'm getting open mouth stares right now. Look, if you read it. Read the Communist Manifesto. You, know, you need to know what people are thinking. So I'm reading it, and I'm talking to my Uncle Sam 13 years ago, and I'm like, you know, the early church, they were all communists. You know, it says in Acts that no, they were all considering everything each other's, and nobody had any private property. And he about came unglued, like he had to restrain himself from like beating me about the head and shoulders. And we had a good laugh about that this week, because I'm older now, and I, I see the truth. Look, this is not communism, Okay. We had a community in the Middle East called the Qumran community. Has anybody heard of this? It's where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, roughly the same time period, you know, maybe a hundred years before. But they were, they had a community purse. And it was in their rules. 
Like everything goes into the pot. It was for real a commune. The early church was not. This was voluntary. This is from David Guzik. I love that guy. Communism says, what's yours is mine. I'll take it. Koinonia, that's the Greek word for fellowship. Koinonia says, what's mine is yours. I'll share it. The second one is God's heart. What's mine is yours, I'll share it. And this is from F.F. Bruce from his commentary in Acts. That the virtue of Barnabas' act, the guy that sold the land and gave it, the very virtue of the act lay in its spontaneous generosity. I'd just like to point out that would be utterly lost if it was mandated. Okay. Moving on. Wealthy people with God's heart are positioned to be uniquely powerful kingdom agents. We need to understand that God wants us to be blessed. And some people are going to be higher on that spectrum and some people are going to be lower because this is the real world. But that's okay because God's heart is also for the really, really blessed people to have his heart and bless other people abundantly. So much that in the same chapter he can say, there's always going to be poor people, but come on, there's not really going to be any poor people. All right, Which is actually the same thing we see in Acts. That there were needy people, but there were no needy people. Because people were taking care of each other. Wealthy people are in a unique position. They can be very powerful in the kingdom. More powerful in some senses than people that aren't rich. And when I say something like that, I had this internal monologue that jumped up and grabbed me and said, what about the widow's might? You guys remember this story? The old lady, Jesus is watching the widows and everybody come and put their money in the offering box. And the old woman comes up. I imagine her, she's got her shawl on and stuff. Basically my grandmother goes up and she puts two pennies in the offering box. And Jesus says, look, what does he say about that? Anybody remember? She gave more than all the rest of them. That's right. Did she actually give more money than the rest? No. But Jesus saw her heart motivation, okay? Jesus knew she was destitute and she's giving out of this place of sacrifice and he considers her a world champion giver, all right? On, there's not anyone that he'd seen all day that was on par with this woman. So he's judging her heart and rest assured, everyone in this room can do that. We can all have that kind of a giving spirit, all right? Whether we're wealthy or not. In fact, maybe it's easier if we're not but my point is, rich people are still in a unique position, more unique than that woman, and it relates to powerlifting because of this midget. <laughs> that's right. That's a real midget. But that's not just a midget with a name I can't pronounce. He is, pound for pound, as of 2015, the strongest man in the world. He weighs 50 kilograms. He squats 300.5 kilograms. That's quintuple his body weight. Okay? And that's him hitting, I think, 600 right there. Now, powerlifting is set up in divisions. It's relative strength. It's relative to your body weight. This guy's a world champion. Nobody else is squatting quintuple their body weight, right? He's stronger than me. Nobody is going to say that he's not a world champion. He is literally doing way over and above what anybody thought he could do with the resources he has. Does that make sense? But if your car is stuck in a ditch, you don't care if the person can lift five times their body weight. You want Brian Shaw. 6'8", 6'8", 
420 pounds. This is the strongest man in the world. All right? He happens to be an American. He has a 1,073-pound deadlift, so far as I know. Yeah. Oh, it's sick. YouTube this guy. Brian Shaw. I'm telling you what, he's awesome. And actually, when you zoom in and you get a face shot, he's got this little baby face. He actually looks like a really nice guy. But he's 6'8", he's a monster. He has like a 290-pound single-arm overhead press. But, but guess what? Guess what he can't do? Hold on. He's 420 pounds. Guess who's not squatting six times his body weight? Or five times? Or four times? Or let's be real, probably not even three times. So this guy, pound for pound, is put to shame by this guy. So I want to relate this to giving and our resources, okay? We can all be world champions at giving in God's eyes because he judges us with what we have, where we are, and he looks at the heart. And there is zero difference to him, zero. If you give that two bucks that was really hard to give, or if you give that 2,000 bucks that was really hard to give, okay? Zero difference to God. So one is not greater than the other, but I'm just saying, if you have a church with a bunch of people that are going to starve to death if they don't get food, we want this. Does that make sense? And so rich people are in a unique position to be powerful kingdom agents. And we need rich people with God's heart. As my mom would say, capiche. Capiche. Okay. <coughs> Moving on. I found a way to work the gym into this sermon. I'm so happy. <laughs> this is our last point. So we should expect blessing. God likes to bless people. God is not against rich people. God's not against riches. Ever. Did you know that? Never. God likes to bless people, but we need to have God's heart with our blessings. He blessed us freely and abundantly. It should be natural to bless other people freely and abundantly. That's what they're for. You are blessed to be a blessing. Now a warning, and this is all throughout the scriptures too, from beginning to end. If you are a person of means, if you are a wealthy person, or wealthier than the next guy, you have to beware of complacency and pride. This is the rest of that story from Acts. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. They want to be cool like Barnabas. Remember that guy sold a piece of land, everybody slaps him on the back, gets a great nickname, son of encouragement. These guys see that and they're like, well, we're going to sell some property too. So Ananias and Sapphira sell some property, but with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias keeps back a part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest and put it at the disciples' feet, at the apostles' feet. Peter looks at the money and knows what's up. Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and has kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Pause. Again, not communism. It was his. You do what he wanted with it. God's not mad that they had property. Going back to the story. Wasn't it yours before you sold it? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Pause. Same deal. It's not wrong to have land. It's not wrong to sell it and have the money. Not what's wrong in this story. Okay? Moving on. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. 
And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. That story goes on, and his wife comes in, and his wife isn't repentant either, and she actually falls down dead as well. Now, if you think that's pretty serious, that's pretty serious. But here's what's going on. Ananias and Sapphira are not concerned about the needy people in the church. Ananias and Sapphira are concerned with seeming like generous people. They're concerned with ego. They're concerned with image. They want to get a cool nickname like Barnabas. You can probably read that in between the lines. The stories are put together for a reason. But if the blessing of God entails his presence, we have to be extra wary of our motives. Have to. God cares about the heart. He's looking right at that thing. He cares why you give the five. He cares why you give the 5,000. He knows when you're trying to cheat him. And God hates, hates when wealthy people are complacent. And I, w- I would throw in an ice and sapphire in this category because it seems to me, and I can't say this for sure, I wasn't back there and this isn't in the text, but it seems to me they're more concerned with seeming generous and getting a good rep in the church than they are with taking care of anyone. They're not concerned. God has some of the harshest things to say in the Bible about the people that aren't concerned about the poor. Who knows the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? This is some commentary on that from Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16.49. Ezekiel says this, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and, what's that underlined word? Unconcerned. Unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Whoa. Whoa. God hates it. Here's another one. This one's from Amos. In Amos, God is actually bringing a lawsuit against Israel. It's formulated that way. Listen to this. Woe to you who are complacent. There's that word again. In Zion. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and your lounging will end. Now, I want to point something out. Not wrong to lie on your couch. I've got a real comfy couch. I got it from the Gerbers, man. It's ugly, but it's comfy. And I lounged on my couch today, and God was not mad. I drank wine on Thanksgiving. God is not mad. Look, I've strummed on my guitar and improvised. God is not mad, okay? God's not mad about any of those things. Here's what he's ticked off about. They're complacent. They're not helping anyone. And they're not grieved by the fact that their nation is falling into ruin. Complacency, arrogance, not bothered by the plight of other people. Look, God doesn't have anything against wealth, riches and blessing, but he hates it when that's not coupled with his heart. When complacency and arrogance and pride creeps in, when you start to disdain people instead of wanting to help them, oh, look, the Lord Almighty gets fiery fighting mad. Okay? One more. There was a rich man, you guys will know this, who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Is there anything wrong with that? Nope. No, there's not wrong, anything wrong with purple clothes or having a nice life. Here's the problem, though. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. 
Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Complacency is bad. What if we rewrote this story, and it was the rich man and his buddy Lazarus, who he let eat at his table every day for no good reason, except he thought, hey... You're destitute. I'd like to welcome you into my house and let you eat at my table every day for the rest of your life. How does that sound? Does that sound crazy? It's been done. This is the story of David and Mephibosheth. David, who did have God's heart, says, you know what? You're miserable. I want to do good to you. Come to my house. Eat my food. Come into my place of abundance and plenty. Let me give you some of what I have. But that's not what happens here. Let's have some takeaways. Well, this was charming, wasn't it? I was like, hey, it's going to be fun. No, it's not going to be fun. No fun. I'm just kidding. Look, these are good things. Come on, takeaways. It's good to be blessed, exclamation point. God loves rich people, and they can be uniquely powerful. In order to understand God's heart about wealth and provision and abundance, we need to understand that they're good things, and God likes to bless people with them. They're not bad ever in and of themselves anywhere in the Bible. Okay? Two, the reason we have blessing and provision is to bless others. It must be, must be, must be coupled with God's heart. The same God that takes great delight in blessing us, we need to reflect Him in blessing other people. Three, we will be judged on the use of our blessings and our motives. Our blessings are a responsibility. Our blessings are a responsibility. And there's one more, one more point that I have to add. I'm half obligated. If you guys have read Pastor Cameron's uh, uh, note from the pastor this week, it's on the back. Is that we are all rich people. We might have great disparity relatively between the people in this room. And there are some people in America that are poor. I don't want to write that up. There are people in this country that seriously need help. You know? But most of us Nowhere to get food. We're not going to starve to death, right? Most of us have running water and a flush toilet in our house. I hope this is true. If it's not, you need to talk to somebody because we need to put this into practice, okay? I'd just like to challenge everybody in this room. Me and my wife have already been talking about this, me and Nicole. I want everybody to think about the, the reality of their blessed position and how they can bless other people. People, preferably, that you know. And if you can't think of things to do with that, or if you have like a ton of means, look, hey, I know a millionaire. He's got to be a millionaire. I've never asked him how much money he's made, but he owns multiple properties and businesses. And one day God said, I want you to give some money to this mission overseas that you support. They need a check. And he couldn't sleep. He got up in the middle of the night. And he's like agonizing over how much money to give. And he feels like the Lord says, I want you to give it all. And he's like, what do you mean all? And he's like, I want you to drain the bank account right down to zero. Do the math. Take your bank account down to zero. Give it all. And you know what he said? All right. Wrote the check. Done deal. Done. And then after he sent the check, he was like, oh, God. (laughs) But it was after. Right? So, wow. I'll tell you what. I want that heart. 
I want that. I want that more. And I'd just like to challenge all of us to have that heart. For the love of money. What a slide to finish with. I'm going to pray. Guys, let's stand up. Let's do that. Let's stand up and pray.